The RPG After Years is part of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network. Find out more at probablywork.com. Welcome to the RPG After Years, your weekly show covering all things RPGs from the past, present, and future. This is episode 126. I'm Scott. And I'm Rich. And joining us today is the long-awaited return of my personal partner in crime. I'm Corey. Coming up on today's episode, we're finally going to begin the review of the most recent RPG Club game, and it's a controversial one to say the least. We'll be reviewing Square Enix's 2009-2010 installment in the most legendary franchise, Final Fantasy XIII. Since it's a review episode, we won't be doing all of our normal segments. No news, no tea time, no catch up. Just straight up review goodness. But before you hit that up, here are some quick show updates. Okay, Corey, you haven't been on since the Tales of Arise review. You got any special uh, updates for anybody you'd like to share? Time, no chat, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, let's see. This morning, sorry for my audio quality, guys. My... uh Laptop is not recognizing my good microphone, so I'm using my earbuds. Um, my throat is a little scratchy. Tennessee played Florida last night, and I did a lot of yelling at the television. So forgive me if I sound like I smoked a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> um, what else? Um, still doing good on the weight loss stuff. Feeling good. Um, been playing lots of video games with Scott. We're in the That's midst about- of Xenoblade 2 right now, right? Yes. <laughs> and we've kind of we've kind of blocked ourselves a little bit because Scott's game right now is Xenoblade 2. I'm playing Triangle Strategy. But the problem is Triangle Strategy, you have to grind like a whole lot. But I can't grind because unfortunately, for some stupid reason, we put my save file on Scott's Switch. So when he's playing, I can't grind. So we've kind of locked ourselves there. <laughs> Mistakes were made. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why we even have two switches if we're not going to use it. I know, right? Um, also, I had kind of a sad thought uh, last night. This review will probably be, I mean, not this episode, but this review in general will be the last time Corey is on the show. Maybe ever. Yep. yep. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm getting sunsetted. Yeah, it's sad. Um, like, I expect to be on the podcast plenty of times after I step away, just because I know I will be involved with whatever Bill does one way or another. But um, I can't think of a reason why Corey would get roped in again. So, <laughs> Unless it's I'm sure there's a way. Game. <laughs> where, where there's a will right yes yeah um but okay we're glad to have Corey on for this episode i'm wor- worried that our panel is a little unbalanced because the three of us all love this game which is i think not representative of the community at large but <laughs> oh well <Fuck> them. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> screw your feelings yeah um as for show updates, we are starting a new RPG Club game, and as of today, this recording, it is time to kick it off. What do you want to tell us about that, Rich? I would love to. So, first thing you guys need to know, the the uh, RPG Club is a game that is nominated by our patron community, um, and then is voted upon, and then we decide uh, what that game is going to be. Then it is broken up into sections, and then every other week, we review those sections um, by checkpoints. Uh, the current game is Fantasy Star 4. As you guys know, it's kind of bittersweet for me uh, since I <laughs> failed the second game a long, long time ago in the golden years. That predates even me. Yep. Uh, so the current checkpoint is to investigate the wreckage. Um, if you're looking at the Game Facts Guide, um, it's section 6.2.2. Um, it's in the show notes. So if you need to look at that, go for it. Uh, that is due October 9th. So head on to the stars. I'm, ho- I'm just hoping I don't hate it. Like, I hope I don't have to, like, claw my way through it. <laughs> um, It's not bad so far. Okay. I'm, I trust you. I'm kind of liking it. I'm kind of. All right. Well, I, I'll, I'm starting it after this, uh, this podcast, so I'll find out soon enough what I'm in for. There you go. As far as the RPGs being released uh, in this past week, on September 22nd, we got No Place for Bravery on the Switch and PC. Also on the 22nd was the Diofield Chronicle that came to PS5, PS4, Xbox Series, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. I've heard mixed things, um, but I've, you know, I've heard positive, I've heard negative. So I think it's just going to be up, that one's going to be up to personal taste. Yeah. Also on the 22nd was Potion Permit that came to pretty much everything. On the 27th was The Legend of Heroes Trails from Zero to PS4, Switch, and PC. Did you get that, Rich? Um, it is fully paid off, but it has not been picked up yet. It will be picked up on the 27th. Right. Since we're technically recording in the past. Yes, I, so. I, so I have it in my hands, everybody. <laughs> um, Valkyrie Elysium on the 29th. PS5 and PS4. That's a pretty big release from Square. And of course, the uh, port of Valkyrie profile, Lenith, as well. Actually, is delayed till the 22nd of December. When did that happen? Just like two days ago, I think. Oh, my God. Well, yep. I made this doc before then. So <laughs> <laughs> it just got announced that it it's not prepared yet. They still need some tweaking on that, so it's been delayed till December, I think, twenty second. Mm. It's still pretty Rich close with the live updates. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing stuff. <laughs> also on the 29th, Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous, PS4, Xbox One and Switch. And on the 29th as well, Undungeon came to PS4 and Switch. 
All right, so current RPGs coming up in the uh, next week or so is Sword Art Online Alkalization Lycoris. Uh, that is on the Switch. Uh, Mana Finder, PC, October 5th. Um, and then near Automata, the end of Yora Edition Switch, October 6th. Uh, I've heard some previews about this, and apparently people are really impressed with the porting job that they did of that game to Switch. Interesting. I'm but, surprised the Switch can run it that well. Yeah. They're like, well, if you brought this game to Switch, why do we got so many cloud games that aren't as impressive graphically as near Automata? Looking at you, Resident Evil. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, what about when was it, that game released originally? Was that a PS3 game? Oh, I remember one of the complaints we kept hearing about near Automata was that this feels like a PS3 game. Yeah, what was I it? Thought it was PS3? I thought it was pretty good. Let me look it up. Well, uh, if that's the case, but it, that's what I'm just saying, though, because if that's what it is, it could handle some of the other games, but it, you know, some of those other games they can't handle on cloud. So I don't know. No, it was a PS4 game, but I, again, I remember people saying it felt like a PS3 game. So I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, if you're looking for a new way to play Near Automata, there's that. And also, they announced an anime a few days ago. This isn't a news episode, but, uh, but yeah. So there's your RPG releases. And with all that out of the way, let's break free from our shackles of fate and start this review. Attack on Final Fantasy is a podcast where IP tried to complete every single Final Fantasy game using attack only. In between the weekly main episodes, I often post other bits and bobs, like games I play on a whim or episodes featuring my lovely wife. Help me, you've got to help me, I've been kidnapped by a podcasting lunatic. So, come and join me over at Attack on Final Fantasy, wherever you get your podcasts. I think I'm pretty much everywhere these days, you lucky, lucky people. Okay, so Final Fantasy XIII was originally released in Japan first on the PS3. And that was on December 17th, 2009, which was 4,666 days ago, or 12 years, 9 months, and 9 days ago. This was bef- uh, pretty much just before they got in the habit of having worldwide releases, right? Like, I can't I think, think so, of yeah. many high-profile games that came out in Japan first after that from Square. Um, but the worldwide release... good for 13 years old. I know, right? <laughs> Um, but the worldwide release, the one that we got was on the PS3 and Xbox 360. Japan didn't get the X360 version until this was March 9th, 2010. And that was 4,595 days ago or 12 years, six months and 17 days. That feels like a long time ago. I have very clear memories of the first time I played this. I was between my freshman and sophomore years of college and it was during the summer because I was living I was an RA, so I got to live in the dorms during the summer. I remember this thing when it came out, or it was announced it was going to PS3, and I had Xbox. I was part of the Xbox group, and I was very upset. And then all of a sudden, it's like, come to 360. I'm like, I don't have to buy a PlayStation. Yay. I think I was the same way. I played the Xbox version. Yep. I don't think I've ever played this game on a PlayStation console. Neither have I. (laughs) So on this show, one thing we always do is we go over what was going on in pop culture at the time, such as the number one music charts, 
So the U.S. Billboard number one is a classic. It's I'm a Bee from the Black Eyed Peas. We both know, we all know this song, right? Oh yeah. Yes. We we very much know this song. <laughs> what do you guys think? It's annoying. <laughs> it is kind of annoying. I could see that. I really dig it though. I was really into this song when it was playing, but it did get annoying because it was they were playing it constantly. All the time. Yeah. It's a good it's a good club jam. Yeah. yeah. And it's a very dynamic song because it starts out with Fergie and then it goes the rest of the songs well I am and then like halfway in it transitions into being more upbeat. Uh I like it. It's just it did get overplayed. That does feel make me feel old though, because the song does not feel like it was 13 years ago. <laughs> in the UK, it was In My Head by Jason Derulo. Whatever happened to him? Is he still making content? He's still around. Yeah, he's, he's still, still around. around. All right. I love this song. Okay. See, I feel less uh, less hype about this song. It doesn't do much for me. I love it. <laughs> he said, "Love it." Is he puts his name in, in the song. He has to say it. He puts his name in every song. I know. It's he like wants he you, forgets. He wants you to make sure <laughs> that you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You need to know who he is, or he's like, "Who? Who am I again?" Yeah. Oh, is this is what it is. Okay. Cool. That's my name, Jason Derulo. So we decided to let Corey tell us what was number one in the movies at the time. Oh, boy. All right. So in the U.S., our box office number one at the time was Alice in Wonderland, which was directed by Tim Burton, starring Johnny Depp, Anne Hathaway, Helena Bonham Carter, Alan Rickman, and several others. So all of the big names. Did you guys ever see that movie? I did, but not until several years later. And my impression of it was that it was just, I know Alice in Wonderland is like being weird as its thing, but this movie took it to another level. Hmm. I've actually never seen it. That's surprising since you love uh, Helen Bonham Carter so much. I know. And Johnny Depp. All right. We're adding it to our movie list. (laughs) Uh, Over in the UK, their box office number one was the exact same movie. So no surprise there because I remember when that movie released, it was on everybody's mind. Yeah, um, but some other some other memorable movies from that year include Avatar, um, Iron Man Two, Shrek Forever After, Twilight Eclipse, Inception, Toy Story Three, Despicable Me, Paranormal Activity Two, Saw 3D, and Tron Legacy. So, tons of good good shit came out that year. That makes me feel really old because when I think back to Avatar, I do not think of avatar and final fantasy 13 as being like the same time frame <laughs> interesting <laughs> yeah right it does make me feel old too i remember going to see avatar in theaters yeah um i remember that too I, it just doesn't feel like i was in college when that movie came out yeah it, it, it seems a little unreal yeah okay so we're going to launch into our history and development there is i found a lot of shit and all of it's Shocking. interesting so <laughs> It may take us a minute to get through this, but we'll see how it goes. So just so everybody knows, in case you're not familiar and listening to this podcast for some reason, you weirdo, 
Uh, Final Fantasy 13 is a science fantasy RPG developed and published by Square Enix for the PS3 and Xbox 360 consoles and later for PC. It is the 13th title in the mainline Final Fantasy series, of course. It features faster combat and an on-the-fly job-switching system. It takes place primarily on the fictional floating world of Cocoon. I don't think there's any way to quickly sum up the thrust of the story, and it makes sense, but the main characters find themselves swept up in a worldwide manhunt while being forced to make the choice between destroying their world or becoming zombie-like creatures. That's the, the most succinct I can make the, what this game is <laughs> that's about. A, that, that's a very good two-sentence summary. Yeah, yeah that, <laughs> that's pretty much it. So, that's so Rich good. is uh, going to tell us about the early development. Oh, man. I didn't realize there was this much stuff about early development, but let's, let's just dig right in here. So, development of Final Fantasy XIII began on February 2004, shortly after the release of Final Fantasy X-2 International, last mission in Japan. At the time, the project was internally referred to uh, by the codename of Colors World. I had never heard that before. That's interesting. I mean, the game is very colorful, but... <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. Okay. Uh, sure. Uh, at the beginning of the development, the game was intended to be released on PS2. Which is uh, crazy to just, think about. Yeah, that, I think that no would way. That, <laughs> yeah, that, there's no way that could have happened. Uh, in May 2005, however, after the positive reception of the tech demo of Final Fantasy VII, the team decided to move the game to the PS3 and develop it with their new Crystals Tools engine. A new game engine created by Square Enix uh, specifically for their next generation of games. And this uh, Final Fantasy VII tech demo that it's talking about, I think everybody remembers, was like a trailer recreating the opening scene of FF7 on PS3. And that's what yep. really kicked off like the huge want and speculation about the FS7 remake, which eventually yep. came true. Yes, thank you. Thank you guys for, for doing that. Um, as you guys know, that uh, Square Enix tends to build engines in order to make their games. So that's kind of the reason why Square Enix does take a little bit of time to, to create some of these games because they do use their own engines. It was a mistake. But I think... Yeah, I think they're actually going to Unreal stuff now, so I think that's a good Thank God. move for them. Um, so Square believed that although creating the engine would delay initial development, yeah, we knew that, um, it would have the long-term payoff of speeding up development time later in, pro in the project. However, the delay was longer than originally anticipated as the engine had to accommodate the requirements of several other games in addition to 13. Uh, another factor was the delayed development of Final Fantasy XII, uh, which came out near the end of the PS2 lifespan uh, as it was. Uh, the Switch ended up costing them about uh, one and a half years. So I remember so. Kid Scott waiting years and years for both FF12 and 13. Because <laughs> 7, 8, <laughs> and 9, and 10 all came out within like a five year span. And then it was all of a sudden we had to get used to waiting forever. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what we do now. Um, although the PC port was considered, uh, Swear decided against it due to their perception of the market at the time, as well as their lack of experience with PC-specific issues such as security. Which is interesting. Yeah, this is before everything went to PC, really. So eventually, yeah, but their port now sucks on yes. PC. Like there's, it's a thing oh, wow. has to deal with. There's more about that later on down here. Okay, <laughs> sweet. 
Um, Final Fantasy 13 was first shown at E3 in 2006. God, that's The trailer shown was an artistic concept that did not represent the final concept of the game, since at the time there was no playable form. Announced alongside the game was Final Fantasy Versus 13, which later became Final Fantasy 15, and the PSP game Final Fantasy Agito 13, which also changed uh, its title later to Final Fantasy Type Zero. The three games together formed the Fabula Nova Crystallis Final Con- Final Fantasy series. It's a mouthful. Square, yeah, for real. Square explained that although all three games are thematically linked with concepts such as Lassie, Fauci, Crystals, the goddess Etro, etc., but not directly related otherwise. And like Final Fantasy XIII, Final Fantasy XV, and Type Zero, both also faced a myriad of development issues and controversies. For example, Type Zero did not see a localized uh, release. release until the PS4 version was re- was released. Um, and then four years later, after the PSP version and Final Fantasy XV, which faced an infamous 10-year development cycle and director changes. Yeah, so this uh, this whole Fabula Nova Crystallis series, I don't think it's an overstatement for me to say that it was kind of cursed <laughs> as far as the yep. development of the, the games. Um, like, I think by the time FF15 came out, they said it was no longer connected at all to the Fabula Nova Crystallis. So it's just, oof. If they would have kept it, I, I would have loved to have seen what they could have done with that, the what they were planning, if it actually pulled off. Yeah, but... Well, before it was changed to 15, you'll remember there were trailers of Noctis and Luna standing in front of a painting of Etro and talking. Yeah, so I do remember that, yeah. <laughs> uh, although Luna was Stella at the time. but Oh, yeah, that's right. We could make a whole other episode about that. <laughs> that's a whole episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, so several of the game's developers had worked on other games in the series. Director Matomo Toriyama had also worked on FF10 and 10.2. Uh, producer Yoshinori Katase had worked on 5 through 8 and as the producer for 10 and 10 too. Uh, main character designer Tetsuya Nomura, I think everybody knows who he is, had performed the same role of character designer for 7, 8, 10, and 10 too. And battle director Toshiro Tsuchida reprised that role from FF10. Which is interesting because FF10 is a very static battle system, but I would also say can be fast. I can almost see how they might have taken Ten's battle system and was like, how do they how do we speed this up and make it fluid for this game? Yeah. As FF13 was the first Final Fantasy game for PS3, the development team's internal goal was for the game to have the same gameplay and craftsmanship impact that 7 and 10 had as the first games of the series on their respective consoles. Which um I, I hate to say it, I don't think they <laughs> accomplished. So on that, no. on that goal, even though we love the game, but it's it's definitely not as uh, universally revered as seven and ten are. But now we're going to launch into some uh, interesting info on the story of the game. Over the first year, director Matamo Toriyama and the scenario director, just say that for me, Kazushige <laughs> Nojima, okay, Nojima came up with the idea for the plot. Nojima thought up the crystal mythology that became the basis for the Fabula Nova Crystallis series, including the concepts such as the Falci and the Lassie. Uh, Toriyama 
then created a story pre- premised on this mythology. He wanted to portray characters at the mercy of a predetermined unjust fate uh, who belong together but collide heavily. In order to achieve this, each of the story's 13 chapters was made to focus on a different protagonist. Uh, chapters 7 and 8 were to, were to mark a turning point for the interpersonal relationships of the party. As an aside, what do you guys think about the chapter-based system in this game? Because it's the first time Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy did something like that. Um, I thought it was good that they did it like that. It kind of helped break it up. Um, on the story of it, I do kind of like that, uh, as opposed to the open world perspective, as was Final Fantasy 15. So, what about you, Corey? I would agree. I, I didn't, I mean, it's one of those things like I didn't really pay that much attention to it, so yeah. it wasn't intrusive enough to, to be a bother. It does make it easy to think about like each part of the game or each section, I guess. Yeah, anyway. In March of 2006, when the structural part of the narrative started to come together, lead scenario writer Daisuke Watanabe joined the team. Toriyama gave him a rough outline of the first eight chapters, which included several cornerstone scenes that needed to be kept, like when party members were separated or reunited. He told Watanabe what he wanted to express with the scenario and asked him to flesh out the story and strengthen how the points in the outline connected. For example, Toriyama's rudimentary instructions in the document would say, Snow and Hope Reconcile. Also, that makes me wonder, I think it's a joke in the the whole thing about how obsessed Toriyama was with lightning. Like people always make fun of, you know, all the scenes with her and he always wanted to push lightning to the forefront of everything. Also, imagine having to be given the guidelines, Snow and Hope Reconcile. (laughs) It's like, okay. And then what that turned into in the final game, like how detailed that uh, part of the story was. It's kind of crazy to me. Thanks for Uh, your notes. (laughs) Uh, Watanabe had to decide about how the scenes with this reconciliation would play out. And then he wrote the scenario that way. And to emphasize what the story tried to progress, express, Watanabe adjusted the personalities Toriyama had given to each character. For example, he felt the party should not have a, quote, reliable and calm leader type unquote, at the beginning of the story in order to more accurately show the confusion and unease after the protagonists transformed into Lassie. I would say that lightning is not reliable and calm at the start. (laughs) Well, yeah. Uh, Toriyama also said that one of the challenges of the story was to portray scenes in which the characters are at their lowest points or, or cornered. For example, he was worried that Saz's suicide scene was almost a little too dark but he wanted something like it in the game for people to take the story seriously. However, I mean, it does, co- it does come across as dark because, you know, we played with Lauren and this was her first time ever playing the game. And I remember that scene when you hear the gunshot, even Lauren was like, <gasps> it's, it's pretty dark even for final fantasy. And it's, it's a little shocking. So, but I'm glad they kept it. Although it didn't fool me that Saz was dead, but, <laughs> um, However, he included more lighthearted elements like Saz's Chocobo Chick to keep a good balance, which was nice. All right, on to gameplay notes. All right, so Toshida's concept for the battle system was to maintain the strategic nature of combat-based battles. Uh, the system stemmed from a desire to create the battles similar to those found in the CG film Final Fantasy VII Advent Children, one of my favorites. Uh, the magic points 
which has been a staple of the series, was removed as Sushida and the other designers felt that it gave players an incentive to not use their most powerful magic attacks due to the MP cost uh, and decided to have magic serve a different purpose instead. Um, that's called strategy. Hello? Yeah. Rich, um, do you remember the trailer, the, the first trailer that was showcasing the battle system? And it was just a bunch of cinematic Advent Children-like angles of lightning, like attacking. And Yeah, I kind of remember that. It was exciting, but looking back on it now, I'm just like, how would that have even been playable? So <laughs> It wouldn't. Yeah. Unless they put a bunch of series of commands that you put it in, and then it just goes. Yeah. Like it was supposed to. So I don't, I don't know. It would have been interesting. Yeah. So the paradigm system was designed early in the battle system's development with the intent of making battles rely on quickly changing strategies and feel fast moving. I think that was accomplished. Um, originally, there were only five rules, but the saboteur was later added as the designers felt that its abilities were missing from the game. It did not fit with the other roles. Imagine so not having a saboteur. A, I was about to say, I need, I need that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, you have to have that. Uh together with the maximum of three characters in battles, each encounter was specifically designed to force the players to switch paradigms and think strategically to stay engaged in battles. Guys, I just had a memory occur to me that I didn't think about until just now. When I first played FF13, I didn't know this word <laughs> paradigm. So I always said paradigm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just laughing at you all over the place. It just I'm looking back at young Scott and shaking my head in despair and distaste. We learn and we grow. <laughs> <laughs> um, also worth noting is that during development, while they were still on uh, PS2, the developers used character models from previous Final Fantasy games as stand-ins to test the battle system. They used Yuna and Riku from FF10-2 and Van and Ash from Final Fantasy XII and there's some blurry screenshots here with uh, cell shaded graphics. I uh, this, I included the, the screenshots in the doc, but you can kind of see Riku in the top left in her gun mage outfit. Uh-huh. And then in the bottom right, you can see a white haired Yuna with something that looks like a kind of looks like the FF13 battle system. Yeah, it's. Interesting. I always, I always like seeing the this early stage stuff. Yeah. I couldn't find any screenshots with Vaughn and Ash in them, but it was on the, the wiki, so it must be true. So Interesting. <laughs> Moving on to the graphics and design. Uh, originally, Toriyama intended for Lightning to be sexy and flirtatious, but later decided he wanted her to be a new type of female character with an athlete's body and a less feminine nature than some of the previous female characters in the series. Can you imagine Lightning being flirtatious? I, I was about to say, Jesus, uh, talk about a, a <laughs> 180 in character personality. Yeah. His guidelines to Nomura were to make her, quote, strong and beautiful, and she was intended to be reminiscent of Final Fantasy VII's Cloud Strife, which I think the intention was met because a lot of people joked that remember they one of the main criticisms of her character there is like oh you mean female cloud <laughs> femme cloud femme cloud but i think in my head she's a her own separate character agreed fang was initially meant to be a male character but the gender was what? changed partially because of the change to lightning's character i guess they wanted someone who was more sexy and i guess fang's a little flirtatious uh, it's her it, accent yeah yeah 
They also did this to coincide with the updated character designs during the latter part of development. And part of me can't help but wonder if this is why or how the lesbian undertones between Fang and Vanille made it into the story. We spoke about that a little bit before on another episode, Rich. Um, I can't help but wonder if it was intentional. You know what I mean? So It could have been. It could have been left in there intentionally because somebody's like, well, let's have this representation. But I don't know back then if that was okay in Japan yeah. at, at that point. Uh, so they just might have left it in there. It was like, eh. Right. We'll see what happens. I couldn't find any concept art of a male thing, though. So I guess there must, it must not have ever made it to the public. The public. It was just in an email. Yeah. <laughs> the graphical capabilities of the PS3 and Xbox 360 compared to previous consoles allow Nomura to use more complex elements in the character designs than ever before, such as Lightning's cape and detailed facial features. This, in turn, meant that the art team had to do much more work for each character or area than in previous games. However, Nomura did not take an involved role in the creation of the NPCs. You don't really think about how a cape wouldn't have been possible before this. <laughs> yeah, for real. Unlike in previous games in, uh, of the series, which were more inspired by Asian locations and culture, Final Fantasy XIII was intended by the art team to be reminiscent of the U.S. Pulse was based on landscape photo photographs the team took from across the country, and Cocoon was intended to be a melting pot of different ethnicities. The setting was also given a science fiction aesthetic to make it stand out more in the series. Art director Isamu Kamikura, say that for me, Scott. <laughs> I don't, Kamikokuryo, that's my best effort. <laughs> close, close enough. Uh, revealed that many additional scenarios, such as Lightning's home, a Nora base, and a zoo, which were functioning in an unreleased build during development, were left out of the final version due to concerns about the game's length and volume. A zoo would have been interesting. I say a zoo, that'd been that'd been cool. At least Lightning's Home made it into a, a cutscene, at least. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I don't really think of Pulse as the US, though. I always think of like Australia or New Zealand. Maybe that's because of Vanilla and Fang's accents. But, Probably. <laughs> yeah. So the game, unlike previous titles in the series, included no explorable towns which I'm pretty sure was a big gripe for a lot of people. It was. Uh, Toriyama said in an interview that the team was unable to make them as graphically appealing as the rest of the game and choose to eliminate them. Toriyama had also originally intended to release DLC that would include a new area, equipment, and missions, but was forced to cut it due to quality concerns so late in the project and difficulties with the, uh, different systems for extra content on multiple consoles. Uh, thank God I didn't do that. <laughs> Thing is how the DLC for 13.2 turned out. Uh, my opinion, not great. Maybe this was for the best. Yeah. But um, it is interesting. It makes sense if you think about how beautiful the game is and how linear the game is, how difficult implementing a towns would be. So worth noting is that one of the main challenges of development was that this was the first game in the series to be developed in HD. It's important to po point that out. Um, and then developers for the environments were given instructions not to reuse assets from other areas, which I think is a very common practice just in general. So <laughs> I'm sure that was a, a pain in the ass for them. Okay, let's talk about the music. My favorite thing. Uh, Mashima Hazamazu. All right, you, you really butchered that one. So Masashi yep. Ham Hamazu. We'll just call it Mazu. I might have got it wrong too, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
composed the game's soundtrack. His previous works on the series was as a co-composer for Final Fantasy X and the main composer for the Dirge of Cerberus Final Fantasy VII game. Uh, Which is interesting the- because this... I don't think Dirge of Cerberus' soundtrack is very good, but this certain soundtrack turned out great, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, the game was the first main uh, series FF game ha- to not include any compositions by the original series composer, Nobu Uematsu, which that's, that's weird. Sa- I thought he did. When I wrote that, I thought it sounded off because wasn't, I guess there was some pieces in 12, but I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty sure there was other games like 10 too. I don't think Uematsu was involved with that. I thought, but, I thought he was. Hmm. Huh. Who knows? So, Do your own research uh, on this one. <laughs> uh, yep. Although Uematsu was originally announced to compose the main theme of the game, this role was taken over by Hamazu um, after uh, Uematsu signed on to compose the soundtrack to Final Fantasy XIV. Uh, the score features pieces orchestrated by uh, Yoshisha Hariano. Just try. Why don't you just say the rest of it? <laughs> Yoshihisa Hirano, Toshiyuki Umuro, and Kunihito Shina? With sure. the Warsaw Philharmonic Orchestra. <laughs> I tried. All of those names. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, the song My Hands from British singer Leona Lewis's second album, Echo, was chosen to replace Final Fantasy XIII's original theme song, Kimiga Kara by... I think you just put these names in here just to fuck with us sometimes. Sayuri Sugawara. For the game's international release. Square Enix president... Yochi Wada later said that it would have been better if the American branch of the company had produced a theme song from scratch, but a lack of staff led to the decision of licensing an existing song. The album Echo was released in November 2009, four months before the English release. At least it was new, I guess. New-ish. Yeah. Yeah. Also worth noting is that FF13 is the first main series game to not feature the prelude song in case Corey doesn't know that's the one that's like or the victory fanfare themes i remember being sore about that when this game came out it's like where's the victory fanfare i i i guess i never put that together that that was actually not there yeah i'm the same i i just never just you know it never dawned on me it's like wait a minute yeah yeah Makes me wonder if uh, people would have thought of this as more of a Final Fantasy if those themes had been included somewhere. I think we need to discuss that one day. What actually makes a Final Fantasy game? Like, what has to be in it to be considered the Final Fantasy game? And it's not just Chocobos in the Cid, I don't think. Yeah, no, there's more stuff that goes into it. (laughs) Yep. Uh, So now it's time for my voice actor corner. This is a segment that we do in the reviews to kind of identify some other famous characters that the voice actors in this game uh, had done. I'm going to try to speed through this because Final Fantasy 13 was blessed with some very well-known voice actors. On the other hand, uh, it also has some that we haven't heard from before or since. So um, lead character Lightning was voiced by Allie Hillis. Um, her first credited roles were actually Mary and Shelley Godwin in Xenosaga 2 and 3 for you uh, Xenosaga fans out there. Uh, she also voiced Liara in the Mass Effect series. It's another game we should be familiar with. Um, Audrey in Valkyria Chronicles 2. Jessica, that whore 
in Resident Evil Revelations. <laughs> Palutena in the Kid Icarus series. Akane in Zero Escape. That was the main chick in Zero Escape, if you remember her, Corey. Um, Pressa in Tales of Zillia. Emina in Final Fantasy Type-0. And uh, many, many others. She's a pretty well-known voice actress. Snow is voiced by maybe the most famous voice actor in this realm, Troy Baker. Uh, he played Yuri Lowell in Tales of Vesperia. Does he do a good job in Vesperia, Rich? Uh, yeah, he does. Okay. Oliver Lindheim in The Legends of Heroes, Trails in the Sky. Vincent, the main character of Catherine, which I know is a game that Corey loves. Oh, yes. Uh, Valva Torres in Disgaea 4. I coat. Aikichui in Persona 2, Innocent Sin, Kai Ling in Mass Effect 3, Ryu Hayabusa in the Dead or Alive series and Ninja Gaiden 3, James Sunderland, the main character of Silent Hill 2 in the HD collection, uh, Jake Moeller in Resident Evil 6, you know, Wesker's b- bastard baby, <laughs> uh, Booker DeWitt in Bioshock Infinite, Joel in The Last of Us, that's a big one. Oh, uh, yes. Delson Rowe, the main character of Infamous Second Son. Uh, Pagan Men, a famous villain from the Far Cry series. Revolver Ocelot in Metal Gear Solid Five. Samuel Drake, Nathan Drake's brother in Uncharted 4 and The Lost Legacy. Jonesy, who is the main character of Fortnite, I believe. Or the one they put on all the cover art anyway. And uh, Simon Krieger, the villain of Miles Morales, which is a game that Rich and I have reviewed. I think you were on that too, weren't you, Corey? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, Vincent Martella, the voice of Hope, has not done a ton of voice acting, but he ha- has voiced Phineas in the Phineas and Ferb series, which is kind of funny. Uh, and he also had a starring role in the 2005 sitcom Everybody Hates Chris, which is apt because I feel like everybody hates Hope. So. <laughs> yes. Except for me. Um, Reno Wilson, the voice of Saz, hasn't done much other voice work either, but he did play... Uh, a recurring role in the Cosby show of all things. He was Interesting. Uh, Theo Huxtable's college friend Howard in seasons five and six. And he also played Orlando in the crank film series, which I think is a, uh, a very high octane action movie series when starting Bruce Willis. Is that right? Uh, no, uh, Jason Statham. Jason Statham. That's right. Sorry. <laughs> and he also had a starring role as officer Carl McMillan in the Mike and Molly series. Laura Bailey, the voice of Sarah, is another super, super famous voice actress. Um, she voiced young Chi-Chi in all the Dragon Ball stuff, as well as young Trunks, Dende, Gotenks, and Eresa in Dragon Ball Z. Dragon Ball Z. Rain in the Blood Rain series, Lust in the Full Metal Alchemist series, my favorite character from the anime. Um, Chinosuke in Crown Shin-Chan, Ritsia in Dawn of Mana, Rasparil in Disgaea 3, Gosh. In Tales of Vesperia, do you know that character, Rich? Which one was it again? Gauch? Ghost. Gauch? Gauche? Tales of Vesperia? Uh, yes, I do remember that one. Okay. Svala in Infinite Undiscovery. Isara Gunther in the original Valkyria Chronicles. One of my favorite characters from that game. Uh, that was the, the main character's sister, Corey, if you remember. Yeah. Uh, Marta Lualdi in Tales of Symphonia. Reese Kuji, Kujikawa in Persona 4, Chun-Li in pretty much every Street Fighter game up until 6, in which she was recast, I believe. 
uh, Raimi Sayanji and Welch Vineyard in Star Ocean, The Last Hope, Rosea and Valkyrie, Valkyrie, Valkyrie Profile, uh, Belle and Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, Kaine, the main character of the original Nier, I think, um, the female protagonist in Persona 3 Portable, Catherine with a C in Catherine. So that's interesting to think the Snow and Sarah voice actresses were Vincent and Catherine and Catherine. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, Angela and Claudia in the Silent Hill HD collection. Helena Harper, one of the main characters in Resident Evil 6. Dol- Again, she's worked with Troy Baker a lot, I guess. Yep. Uh, Dolce in Rune Factory 4. Abigail Fetch Welker in Infamous Second Son and First Light. Mary Jane in the newest Marvel Spider-Man game that we all love. Um, interestingly, Abby in The Last of Us Part 2. Which that bitch Abby. <laughs> is interesting considering Troy Baker, you know, voice Joel. But... Uh, and Black Widow, the Marvel character of Black Widow, and a bunch of shit, including the newest Avengers game, which we have spoken about at length. Uh, primary villain, Glenth Disley, slash Bartandalus, was voiced by Scott Bullock, who has also had many smaller roles in a bunch of cartoons, but also Logos in Final Fantasy X-2 and Hades in Kid Icarus Uprising, which I've heard is a fantastic character. Uh, Georgia Van Kylenberg, the voice of Vanille, uh, and Rachel Robinson, the voice of Fang, have not done much voice acting work. I couldn't find hardly anything about them. However, uh, notably, Georgia Van Kylenberg was interviewed about her role, and she said that the voice actors forced her to make all those weird noises, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Fang and Vanille speak with a different accent from the rest of the party. In the Japanese version, this is the Okinawan dialect of Japanese and in the English localization, they speak with an Australia or New Zealandish accent. The idea to cast two characters with an Australian accent came from the localization team, who required who requested the voice directing team to look for either Australian or New Zealand sounding voices. The team wanted Fang and Vanille to sound like they're from another world, but more in the sense of their voices having a different melody rather than a thick accent. I love both of their voices. Uh, I don't. I know there's a lot of complaints about their voice acting. I think they both did a great job. Agreed. I do too. Also, notice, notably, the podcast Final Fantasy Union, the most well-known Final Fantasy podcast, has interviewed multiple FF13 voice actors, including Laura, ba- Laura Bailey and Troy Baker, at the same time. We Damn. usually don't do shout-outs on this uh, podcast, but if you want to hear more from the FF13 voice actors, those interviews are out there. All right, so we also had somebody from the Final Fantasy show or uh, deal on the show. Uh, Liam Mulvey played Libertus in Final Fantasy XV's Kingsglaive, and he had a little bit of part in the uh, commanding commando series that they had on Final Fantasy XV. So we we may not have top tier inter, uh, you know voice actors, but we had a pretty nice guy on there. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So moving on to uh, some information about the releases and ports. All right, so a playable demo of Final Fantasy XIII was included in the Japanese version of Final Fantasy VII Advent Children Complete, released in 2009. That's weird. Um, so, in, so Toriyama stated that the release of the demo, which was not in the original development schedule, helped the team recognize a shared vision for what the game should look like and feel like, a problem which had been plaguing the development team up until then. It helped them to pry towards the remaining work. 
which increased their development speed for the remainder of the project. The game was intended to appeal to both Western and Japanese audiences, and focus groups both re- uh, regions were used. Uh, the English localization began while development was still in progress to lessen the delay between releases. So that's a pretty good thing to do, uh, honestly, because, you know, some of these localizations take years to do. I remember thinking the same thing when they did the Final Fantasy 15 episode Duskai demo that came with Type Zero, because it was it felt like after that we were finally seeing some progress in development on that game. So apparently sometimes they do demos to force them to fucking make the game. <laughs> Are you talking about the demo 15? Yeah. Yeah. So do you remember that voice actor for that guy? For Nartis? Yeah. It was, that was terrible. Well, it was the same voice actor, but they changed his direction after that. He re-recorded pretty much he everything. made his tone differently? Yeah. Because his tone, he's trying to sound like Batman. Right. <laughs> uh, the game was initially going to be released solely for the PS3. But an Xbox 360 version was announced late in the development cycle. The Xbox version, due to technical limitations, runs at a lower resolution, which is 720p max versus the PS3's 1080p, and is spread across three discs due to the game's liberal use of high-res pre-rendered FMV videos and the Xbox 360 still using CDs versus the PS3's Blu-ray disc format. The game was meant to be exclusive to PS3 and Asian territories, but Square reversed their decision very late in development, and it's worth noting that Final Fantasy XIII was the first game in the series to be released on multiple platforms simultaneously. Which is interesting. I've, I've encountered multiple people in the, uh, the past who, like, I'll say something like, oh, did you make it to disc two? And it's like, <laughs> what? There's two. What? <laughs> there's, a t- there's a two? Yeah. I remember getting that the first time and just opened it up and it had multiple discs. I'm like, hey, it's like the PlayStation 1 era. Yeah, because <laughs> 10 was one disc. But yeah, there are a lot of uh, high like pre-rendered scenes in this game. Like a lot, a lot. They stopped doing that as much after this game, I think. So alongside the release of the game in Japan, Japanese alcoholic beverage distributor Suntory released the Final Fantasy 13 Elixir drink to promote the game. Because, you know, that says Final Fantasy. Sign me uh, up. Yep. <laughs> On the same day, an FF13 PlayStation Home personal space was made available for free in Japan, along with costumes and personal space furnishings. If you don't uh, know what PS- PlayStation Home is, do, do you know what it is, Corey? No. I remember it. So it was like a a PlayStation world that it was like a sim thing almost that you lived in and you moved your avatar around. Other people were running around it too. It was like built into the PlayStation. Huh. Uh, I never played it, but it looked interesting. Interesting stuff. Yes, I, I never heard of it. Uh, so the PS3 version came with a code that would allow you to register to become a beta tester for Final Fantasy XIV. Obviously, nobody took advantage of that. Uh, the, uh, and to be clear, <laughs> this is the Final Fantasy XIV that bombed before it was rebuilt. <laughs> yup. Uh, Xbox users instead got promotions where they could get FF13 themed costumes for their avatars, such as a Psycom uniform and a moving Chocobo chick. I had that. I have that too. Yep. <laughs> Uh, the game was re-released as part of two Japan-only packages, including the Final Fantasy 25th Anniversary Ultimate Box, which included most of the games in the main series in various formats. I remember this and seeing it and kind of wanting it, but it was interesting because it had like the P- the PSP version of FF3 and then just like different disc formats. Um, that was in December t- 2012. 
as well as the Lightning Ultimate box in November 2013, which included FF13 and its two sequels in one package. I hope one day we will get that as remasters for ourselves. (laughs) Different regions also had limited edition consoles released. Japan got a PS4 with a pink color print of Lightning on the surface of the console, while the U.S. received a white Xbox 360 Elite with the silver strip on the hard drive emblazoned with the Final Fantasy 13 logo. Nomura also created several Final Fantasy 13 themed Xbox faceplates. Uh, PAL Territories also got a collector's edition of the game, which included a best of soundtrack CD, um, Idolan art, art card prints, LSE brand decal, and a hardback art book. Of course, there were also several informational Ultimania books released in Japan. The game was also later released for Microsoft Windows via Steam, along with its sequels. But more on that in a little bit. This, uh, I think this PS, I got a picture of this PS3 <laughs> in the dot. It looks, uh, I like it. it. Looks pretty awesome. Yeah, it looks badass. I wish uh, past Scott had been more on that. <laughs> had more money. I was, I was college kid, broke. <laughs> uh, FF13 was also the first game in the series due to receive an official release in Chinese and Korean. It was also the first Final Fantasy game in which Japanese voiceovers could be enabled. An international version of the game for the Xbox 360 called Final Fantasy 13 Ultimate Hits International was released in Asia in December 2010. The game included an easy mode option, which I I wonder how that changes the game, and the English voiceovers. This was also the first appearance of the story epilogue book titled Final Fantasy 13 Episode 1, which also hinted about the future of the story that would be more fully explored in the game's sequel, Final Fantasy 13 2. By the way, if you want to go listen to the Final Fantasy 13 novellas, they are available in English now, but I've also done audiobooks of them on my channel because I was a big geek <laughs> around that time with too much time on my hands. Um, there is also a prequel called Final Fantasy 13 Episode Zero Promise that dives further into the 13 days before the game begins, and another sequel novella called Final Fantasy 13 Side Story, A Dreaming Cocoon Falls Into the Dawn, that chronicles what some other characters were up to during the game. I have not read that one because I did not know it existed until I was making this review doc. (laughs) (laughs) FF13 was also released in Japan on iOS and Android devices via cloud streaming in Japan, which I forgot about until this. I I saw that. I remember seeing that a little bit back in uh, 2018 or whenever, I think it was maybe... 15 16 i remember seeing that popping up somewhere yeah and a lot of people were like are we gonna get this on mobile because you gotta think about a lot of the phones started to become more and more powerful just as much as the 360 and the ps3 so Uh uh-huh and uh, i remember when people were asking me how can i play this game you know for the rpg club i remember being like i think it's on mobile and then looking it up and it's like oh that was just japan (laughs) (laughs) japan only got fun stuff yeah On November 2018, it was also added to Xbox One's backwards compatibility program along with its sequels and also featured improved performance, (laughs) which is the version I played this time, and it was great. Yep, that's what I played too. It looks phenomenal on the Series X. Yes, it It really does. I I still want a remaster though. (laughs) Um, So moving on to the fun, I got like a fun facts section here, just various bits and bobs that don't really fit in anywhere else. 
Okay. So an Easter egg exists where if the player spins the analog stick as is a typical for grinding in previous games, the character will stop and get irritated. What? I didn't know that. Yeah, if you spin around in a circle really fast, they f- physically stop and look annoyed, which uh, I think I didn't find out until I'd played the game for you know 100 hours or whatever the first time. <laughs> I think I'm going to go try that out. I was about to uh, say, I want to <laughs> test that now. <laughs> nice. On June 2nd, 2010, a class action lawsuit was filed against Square Enix and Sony Computer Entertainment America due to the alleged freezing bugs in the games, damaging and physically breaking PS3 consoles. Uh, Square Enix claims that the issues... It is an issue with the console, while Sony blames the problem on a glitch in the game disc. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's the console, because PlayStation <laughs> 3 was very notorious for just doing stupid shit. Um, yeah. And especially their download abilities. So I couldn't I think, find anything. I mean, I could have researched harder, but I couldn't find anything about the results of this lawsuit. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny that there's a lot of jokes with the PS3 community back in the day when 360 came out um, that like this is gonna be a morbid joke so i apologize but the way the download speeds worked on the ps3 if you had cancer you would die before it ever downloaded that was the joke oh, oh, so that you i mean i don't know you guys ever have a playstation 3 because i didn't oh, i yeah. did a couple okay, of so, not the early do you remember models. the download speeds like uh, on the big one i do remember it taking a while yeah yeah, yeah. so the the guys that made rooster teeth the guy that made like red versus blue the halo series and whatnot for mm-hmm. machinima that was the joke that they had like you know if you're ever going to play the if you're going to play a game and you have cancer you're just going to die before it downloads so that's just horrible <laughs> yes but that was that's how like long that stuff took so again that's why i believe that the playstation 3 was just broken if i had to decide point. i would agree with you yeah um, in August 2010, a television advert for the Final Fantasy 13 was banned in Britain by the Advertising Standards Authority due to Square Enix advertising the Xbox 360 with the footage of the PlayStation 3 version exclusively. Uh, yeah, that does happen. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember the Aliens Mar- Colony Marines debacle that happened a couple years ago. Vaguely, yeah. So they were showcasing a... I don't know what build they were using, but it was showed that it was so crazy looking good. And then the final release product was not that at all. So the company started to get in trouble. I think they they said it was an accident, but if I was Square Enix, I would try to get away with the same thing because the PS3 version does look better than the 360. So um, here's some more. Oh, and I think there was another lawsuit involving that as well, by the way. So. Before uh, his official name was revealed, Snow was referred to as Mr. 33CM, referring to his foot size. Um, that would be a size 16 in American or a 14 in the UK. So huge Jeez. feet. <laughs> yeah. His name in early development was also Storm, which is interesting. I'm glad they ch- changed it. Uh, Saz changed quite dramatically during development. He was originally going to be a lighter-skinned man named Baz with shoulder-length brown hair that used shoulder mounts to use various equipment, such as a shield arm. And I've got a little picture of concept art for this, <laughs> which is just a totally different character. Yeah, that's completely different. Huh. I mean, they kept the jacket, it looks like. Uh, yeah, I could. I didn't notice that, but yeah. Um, it reminds me of Barrett with the whole like changing arms thing a little bit. Yeah. But anyway, um, the characters Rig Day and Bartholomew Estime, Hope's dad, uses the same body models as common NPCs. 
with only their head models being changed, which I thought was an interesting shortcut they took, considering how little shortcuts they took in this game. Uh, throughout the story, you may notice that the characters' brands are at different stages. Also, different characters' brands advance slower or faster than others. They are all at the final stage by the ending, though. Notably, Vanille's does not advance to the final stage until she is about to transform the Fang during the ending, while the others are at the final stage prior to the final battle. It's uh, a pretty obvious thing. Like you notice that the brands are advancing as the story goes, but I, I thought it was interesting, yeah. like how yeah. they advance at different rates. Um, in one of the houses in Araba, you can find a photo of Fang and Vanille together on a counter, which we did. <laughs> it's very easy to miss, but it's there. Yep. At one point in development, the dev team considered making Vanille the main character, but they dismissed the idea as they had already released a trailer and art featuring Lightning. I always say uh, that Vanille is really who the story is about, so I get why they, why they thought about changing it. Yeah. Uh, and, and lastly, spoilers for Final Fantasy XIII 2. Although the Chocobo Chick is never named, in Final Fantasy XIII 2's Saz DLC, it is revealed that the chick is female and its name is Chocolina. A parallel version of the chick also transformed into the character by the same name, Chocolina. Chocobocalina. Uh, oh, I hate that. I hated that so bad. Every time she spoke, it was just like, eh, just I, shush. It was kind of annoying, but I, I liked her. All right, so now we got some info on the sales and reception. Nice. So talking about the sales piece real quick, do you guys remember one of the interviews they had where one of the, whoever was a part of it showcased a tattoo? Like a legit tattoo of the symbol. I forgot about that, but yeah, that totally happened. Yeah, it was awesome. They showcased it. It was like on his arm or something. So as they were doing the promotions for it. Good call. Yep. So during development, they aimed to sell 5 million copies of the game. Toriyama wanted the game to be the ultimate single player RPG. Uh, Interesting. Uh, FF13 sold 1 million units on its first day of the sales in Japan, and it sold 1.7 million copies for the PS3 in Japan by the end of 2009, uh, and 1.9 million by the end of 2010. Square Enix had anticipated high initial sales of the game and shipped close to 2 million units for its launch. The game had sold more than 1 million copies in North America in its release month, and then in March 2010, Square Enix stated that FF13 was the fastest-selling title in franchise history. According to media... uh, create a female gamers accounted for nearly a third of the game's Japanese fan base as of July, 2012, a combined total of 9.7 million units have been sold on consoles for both final Fantasy 13 and its sequel 13 two as of Jul- January, 2017, the game has sold over 7 million copies worldwide on console by April, 2018, the windows version had sold over 746,000 copies. So it sounds like it was successful. They met their goal eventually. One thing I'll go ahead and bring up now, I'm a little surprised by how positive all the information about the sales and reception was given the general feeling in the uh, fan community. But we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Um, So FF13 received generally positive reviews initially. Review aggregator Metacritic currently has the console version at an average of 83 and the PC version at 65, um, which sounds 83 sounds good, but I think that's kind of low for a mainline Final Fantasy title, unfortunately. Um, it was rate, rated at 39 out of 40, though, by famous Japanese gaming magazine Famitsu. 
Dengeki concluded the game deserved a score of 120 out of 100, as 100 was not enough, apparently. <laughs> it received Best RPG of the Year from the Spike... Or, sorry, it was nominated for Best RPG from the Spike Video Game Awards, which is what our current video game awards used to be. Just, they got yep. rid of Spike. Um, but it lost to Mass Effect 2, which is interesting. Right. I've heard Mass Effect 2 is good, though, so we need to play it eventually. Uh, the game's visuals, technical accomplishments, soundtrack, and battle design were a particular point of praise. However, some other aspects, such as the game's story, characters, linear- linearity, and early handholding, were uh, points of criticism. Which is fair, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Toriyama remarked that many of the negative reviews came from Western reviewers who were used to open-world games noting that it was much more difficult to tell a compelling story in that style of game, which I have to agree with him. He said that he had aimed to revitalize Final Fantasy and make a new type of game, and that in some ways, FF13 was more like an FPS uh, versus an RPG. I don't, I don't get that comment. Personally. Nope, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> not not at all. Yoichi Wada, then president of Square Enix, made his thoughts about the reception of the game known to Gamasutra. He said, quote, some value it highly and some are not very happy with it. He added, should Final Fantasy become a new type of game or should Final Fantasy not become a new type of game? The customers have different opinions and it's very difficult to determine which way it should go. And I would say that FF13 was the last mainline Final Fantasy that still feels like a classical RPG. Uh, FF15 was more action based. It looks like FF16 mm-hmm. is going almost full action. Um, yeah. So I have to wonder if the the reception of the game by fans is a major contributor to why Final Fantasy changed so much going forward. Agreed. So in October 2014, Square Enix released a Microsoft Windows port of the game via Steam, where it was met with even more critical reception than the original version. Some claimed that an already flawed game had received a flawed port, decrying the low resolution, limited graphical options, and low frame rate. It was eventually patched long after the modders had released fixes themselves. Um, yes, it was broke ass, terrible. Like I've played it a couple times. I even have a high high dollar PC laptop right now, and it still runs like shit. Even oh, with wow. the patches, I've got some of the patches in there too. So it still runs. I mean, it can run, but man, it could. Oh. it just doesn't do very well. See, I thought they had mostly fixed it now, but it just took it forever. They did. They fixed a lot of it, but like it, you have to go in there and tweak settings. Ugh. Okay. Well, I think most people know this, but Final Fantasy XIII did receive two sequels, Final Fantasy XIII 2 in January 2012 and Lightning Returns, Final Fantasy XIII in February 2014. While not considered failures, both of these games received less sales and more mixed reviews, though Square took strides to address criticisms of FF13 in the sequels. Uh, both games are significantly less linear, for example than this one. Um, in September 2014, Square Enix announced the Final Fantasy XIII trilogy had been widely successful and had shipped over 11 million copies worldwide. And I think we've kind of alluded to this already, but even though a lot of this stuff is positive, um, a lot of the fans really hate Final Fantasy XIII. It's, I feel yeah. like it's more it's harder to find somebody that likes it than somebody that doesn't, uh, which is sad because, uh, like I said earlier, the three of us, are huge fans of the game. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it's got a great story to it. Um, yeah. Sure. There are bugs and stuff with it that we you know don't like, but it's still a good story uh, to which technically 
is what Final Fantasy is, is a story-based game. Supposed yep. to be. And the reason FF13 is my favorite of the trilogy, I, I really like the other two games as well, but I, I think it has by far the strongest story. But th- that's one of the main criticisms that people give is they hate the story and the characters. So <laughs> who knows? Because they don't understand it. Yeah. That's, that's the thing I don't understand is how can you how can you hate the story? It's, I mean, it's such a good story and it's told with these incredibly beautiful cut scenes and we'll, yeah. we'll talk about that in the story part. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's, believe it or not, I cut some stuff. That's, <laughs> but, <laughs> Jeez. Uh, but that's all, all the interesting shit I could find worth mentioning about this game. And I even had to stop myself. Like I would start to get into more information about 13.2 and lightning returns. It was really interesting. I was like, wait, that is not this game. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we had planned on covering a little bit of the story today, but it took us over an hour to get through that. So we're going to cut it here. We'll see what we decide as far as how the rest of the review will be structured. But any, uh, what was like your favorite thing you learned today, guys? Uh, I, I mean, regarding the different development of the fun facts, I mean, that was kind of interesting. Uh, but I don't know. There's just a lot of stuff that I didn't know about it. Yeah. I, I felt like I'm an expert on this game and I, I learned a ton of shit too. So <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, so we're going to go ahead and move on to our outro. And that's going to do it for part one of the Final Fantasy review. Corey, do you know what we're doing next week? Uh, maybe part two. <laughs> Good guess. Yeah, yeah, so we'll be doing a Final Fantasy 13 review part two. At some point, Rich and I will also record uh, for the RPG Club, uh, since Ooh. that'll be due by then as well. But what? speaking of the RPG Club... So, again, guys, the RPG Club is a game that we nominated through the community through Patreon, and we voted on, and we came to a conclusion of the game Fantasy Star 4. The checkpoint is to investigate the wreckage, which is 6.2.2 in the Game Facts Guide in the show notes. That is due Sunday, October 9th. Launching into our plugs, if you would like, please rate and review the show on Spotify. It helps the... uh the thrust of the show, the algorithm and all that. And again, just because uh, Bill and Rich, or sorry, Rich and I are uh, leaving, the podcast will continue on. So please continue to support us and Bill to the best of your abilities. Uh, And you can tell your friends about it as well. Yeah. All right, guys, the Patreon, uh, things will be changing with that eventually. But for right now, it has early episode access, Add free episodes, extra reviews, the RPG Club, and many, many more. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash RPG after years. And I guess this is a brief announcement. Maybe I should have said this at the top, but uh, we are no longer going to be streaming the episodes to Twitch. 
Rich and I are only going for a few more months anyway, and I doubt Bill plans on incorporating Twitch streaming into <laughs> his future plans. I, so, I like your note here next to it. It says Twitch. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, we we liked having people in the chat to talk to us, but it, it, it wasn't really a uh, popular thing, I don't think. So yeah. uh, if you have any questions or feedback, uh, you can feel free to email us at rpgafteryears at gmail.com. Another way to get a hold of us. Oh, so. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you can uh, you can uh, join the Discord community. It's pretty active. Uh, the link can be found in the show notes or the pinned tweet on Twitter. You can even find Corey there. He gets into shit. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> um, speaking of Twitter, you can follow the show at RPG Years. If you want to reach out to me personally, I'm at the Scott Spot. And I'm at HailBlue1569. And I'm at VFL Court. Thank you all for listening to this episode. It's been a fun time. We learned a lot. Um, I am really proud of how this all came together, and I'm looking forward to continuing it in episode 128, in which or 127, in which we'll talk about the story of the game. Until then, I'm Scott. I'm Rich. And I'm Corey. Thank you guys for listening to the RPG After Years. See ya. Bye. See ya. This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network. Follow us on Twitter at ProbablyWork for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called ProbablyWork.com.